You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I'm talking with Jenny about what is the current state of launch and life cycle and how will it evolve. <music> I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. And we also have a special interest group within this community that is exactly about the topic of the episode today. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. And of course, you'll also get much more things around the business understanding and stuff like that through PSI. So head over to psiweb.org and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And this one is a special one because it will be first one in a series of episodes that we are recording. And for this one, I'm welcoming Jenny. Hi, Jenny. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> okay. For this first one, let's dive a little bit into your career a little bit and, and maybe that can be also a little bit tied to the topic actually today, because the topic for today is really kind of what is the current state of medical affairs and how has that evolved from, you know, over the last two decades. But let's go into kind of your experiences first. How, how did you came into this area? So I have to even take a step back and say, how did I even get into statistics? And the story is interesting. So when I was a student, what I learned was that I loved solving problems, and and yet I was still a little bit um, <coughs> a little bit unsure of how I would do in statistics. So I took graduate statistics as an undergrad, and it went fine. And so my advisor really pushed me to go into statistics. And when I graduated, I had wanted to go into pharma. I always knew I wanted to solve practical problems. But the pharma company I wanted to join wasn't hiring new graduates. So I got into public health as an mm -hmm. analyst. And I thought, well, you know, this is okay. I will solve problems that matter in the domain of public health, and this will have an impact on the system. And that was fantastic. And I learned a lot about programming, and I learned a lot about decision-making, you know, within healthcare management. And then... Finally, that I had enough experience uh, to get hired on with that first pharma company as a clinical development statistician. And I thought, ah, oh, this is great too. So now I will get to join a team to solve bigger problems. And I did that for a long time. And I you know, was involved in a number of device and drug approvals. Uh, but then another company came calling and said, we're starting a medical affairs organization and your background seems to be really different. And this mm -hmm. was, you know, the first time that, that I'd heard that that background, that different background would be appreciated. And I thought, huh, okay, well, this fits in with my plan too. I'll work more strategically to help teams make a difference. So I joined a, a medical affairs organization in the U.S. 
and worked my way up into management, um, got to solve a number of problems that really helped shape the healthcare ecosystem. So not just you know answering questions about the product, but really answering questions about the disease area and the domain and the way that care mm. is delivered. And that was great fun. And then I came to Global Medical Affairs and really got an appreciation for the differences between the US and the global healthcare systems and, and you know the similarities and the differences in the types of problems that they have to solve in order to provide you know really good care for their patients. So that's a little bit of my career journey. Yeah, that's that's good. And it's um it's really great that you have, you know, these insights from the US. You have the insights from a global perspective. Um because I've never worked in the US, you know, specifically on the kind of so to say local level in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've worked on all the countries outside of the US. <laughs> and, uh, but of course, kind of when you look from a global perspective, you know, there's in the end, there is no, you know, global sales. There's always local sales. And mm-hmm. um, kind of the global means you, you need to make sure that you support all the different markets around the world and yes. appreciate their variability and you need to take that set into account. Okay, let's dive into a little bit of the topic today. So, and that is how we got to where we are now. We both started in medical affairs quite some time ago. And, and when I first kind of stepped into this area, I changed from a, also from a global clinical trial statisticians into local medical affairs statistician. And some people said, wow, this is kind of a a demotion or something kind of a very, very unusual thing to do. Uh, But I really wanted to have much more kind of freedom of um, what I could do. And the, the landscape at the time, so kind of to two decades ago in the, the early 2000s was, and in hindsight, I knew that this was the same for lots of other companies, was that all the different affiliates around the world were running lots of lots of affiliate studies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you would see kind of, you have a big company that comes with a new product. And during the launch of the product, you know, Germany will run some studies, UK will run some studies, the US will run some studies, or everybody will, you know, run some studies. They fund locally, they run locally, and they report locally. Um, And very often kind of these studies, you know, the global headquarter would say, okay, here's some kind of rough guidelines. Yeah, what you need to take care of, everything else. Just do it. What was your perception at at the time? Yes, I would say it was very similar. I think when you first enter medical affairs um, and you look at it from a purely rigid development statistician's point of view, you think, why do you even need all of these studies? And what's going on in those local markets and in those local healthcare ecosystems that are demanding different evidence than, you know, what's been provided in our beautiful label? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as soon as you start talking to people that are a part of that ecosystem, whether it's the country managers, whether it's the business managers or physicians or patient groups, 
you learn that, you know, there does need to be this bridge between developments and clinical practice, that there's additional evidence that is needed locally and appropriate communication. Yeah. And yeah. so then as you dig deeper and learn more about what exactly is needed, you realize that by addressing some of these local needs and taking a more holistic view of health outcomes and their impact on patients and society, you, you can have a bigger impact on that. And so it's, again, a little bit beyond the product and thinking more about the outcome that you want to achieve. Yeah, yeah. But there's also some, some other aspects in terms of studies that were mm -hmm. important from a commercial perspective. Yeah, so the yeah. getting evidence is, is one thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. and but running studies has a couple of other aspects as well. Mm -hmm. And that is important for phase four studies, but it's also important for phase three studies. These are also tools to engage with your target audience. Yeah, so lots of the uh, physicians that are investigators in these studies, they get experience with the product. They get experience with your company. And so building these relationships is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And then that's, that's another aspect here. Yeah, that if patients have or physicians have, you know, seen firsthand how your treatment works, what kind of side effects occur, how they were able to cope with these kind of things, that gives them much more kind of trust in prescribing this treatment later on. Mm -hmm. Because, well, they have already some experience in it. And very often in, in some kind of safe environment, yeah, where there's a protocol, they get a lot of guidance, there's a lot of support from the companies in terms of, you know, whenever anything is happening, let's say an adverse event is happening, you know, um, they, they, they have someone to talk to, yeah, mm -hmm. to manage these things. And so that gives them a lot of, yeah, experience. Absolutely. I think, I think the other important aspect of that is that it goes both ways, right? Yeah. Um, is that, you know, we're very used to running studies and running things according to a particular protocol and being, you know, again, rigorously trained scientists who think very carefully about those protocols. And sometimes there's a gap between what is written in the protocol and what is usually done in clinical practice. And so yeah. learning to listen to these investigators and partner with them and make sure that we're answering the right questions and, and working within a system that will, that is implementable yeah. um, later on is really important. And so I think this is one of the aspects of, of medical affairs that is unique is that, you know, we think a little bit differently about what the patient population that is potentially exposed could be and whether or not we need to study, whether it was adequately studied in the development program and whether we need to consider looking at that a little bit more closely, again, based on this physician feedback, again, based on the realities of the local treatment environment, what other questions do we need to address? Yeah, and there's lots of different questions. I was at the time working quite a lot in the psychiatry space. Mm -hmm. And if you go back in the in the time, you will see there were you know 
blockbusters at the time were antidepressants, antipsychotics, yeah. And I was exactly working these these spaces mm -hmm. at the time. And many of the usual studies would be short-term studies, yeah, mm -hmm. like eight weeks or something like this. But mm -hmm. of course, these patients are not treated for only eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia for life, yeah? yeah? So they get treatment over years. And um, it was really, really important to understand, you know, what happens over a longer period of time. Yes. And the other thing is in a real life setting, you wouldn't have the luxury of capturing all these extensive, you know, questionnaires where you need to have, you know, highly skilled physicians with specific training to, to even write these questionnaires. <laughs> then, of course, you need to have a much closer look into this or more vulnerable subgroups. Yeah, so we have published quite extensively about substance abuse in <laughs> schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Well, these are the patients that usually are not included in phase three studies. Yeah, so because they're much more harder to manage. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing in the observational study actually at the time was we had three outcomes or three baseline char characteristics no substance abuse, substance abuse, and not reported. Guess which one was the most well, difficult one? So not reported. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. So these kind of areas have an impact and you need to understand them. Absolutely. And if, if a treatment in that environment is going to have an impact, not just on that patient, but on the system as a whole, you, you need to crack that code. I think another interesting point in that area that I wonder if you could speak about is the realities of dosing. We, in our clinical trials, you know, will go forward with particular doses and with a particular regimen, and it's very compliant within the context of those pivotal studies. Yeah. And then... Yeah, in real life, it looks completely different. I was working on one study where kind of, um, you know, on a global level, people wanted to say, oh, let's make it really easy, yeah? Instead of having all this up titration, yeah, just, just, directly start with the target dose yeah and uh, yeah that will have a little bit more side effects but we don't care we make it much more easier for physicians mm -hmm. if we start directly with the target dose mm -hmm. but that was not really listening well to the actual physicians mm -hmm. they you are used to titrate these types of medications it was not really a hurdle for them and They did the same with this new drug because mm -hmm. they knew that they would have more side effects. And mm -hmm. they rather titrate and have an effect a little bit later, tell the patient, but don't have the side effects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rather than making it perceived easier for them to directly start with the photos. Right. Yeah. And these kind of things is, is really valuable to know. Yes. And, and so I would say that, you know, while that two-way communication occurs in all phases of research, it is, it is really essential when you're thinking of launching a drug to remember that, you know, you're going to have to launch a drug under uh, less restrictive conditions than you did in your pivotal settings. And so you need to understand all of the constraints and limitations and potential pitfalls in that circumstance so that you can get the best outcome for patients. And that means some study.
Yeah, yeah. Another example about dosing is a, is in ED actually, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a an observational study that looked into this, and there were two different doses. Mm-hmm. And when they compared the doses, interestingly, the lower dose was more effective than the higher dose. Mm-hmm. But of course, the higher dose had more older patients, had more comorbid patients, had more heavyweight patients, had lots of other kind of prognostic factors, mm-hmm. um, bad prognostic factors. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it was really interesting to learn that physicians were able to tailor the right dose to the right patients. Yeah. And it was, it, it was really kind of a, you know, when the f- physician first reported about this, she said, I don't know really why we don't see this dose response here that we always see in the clinical studies. And, you know, that, that digging into this um, helped to much better understand how the drug is actually used. Um, and that helped to then feedback to the physicians who were treating this and the patients who were taking it, actually paying for it as well, you know, when they need to, you know, use the high dose and when to use the low dose. Yeah. And so these kind of things are really, really valuable to understand. However, there's also a little bit of a dark side there as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, with this experience and these kind of things, there's also this, these seeding studies, yeah, where studies are predominantly done not for generating evidence, but for generating sales, yeah. And there has been a couple of, you know, really, really bad examples where companies would you know, recruit tens of thousands, sometimes more than 100,000 patients, yeah, uh, in observational studies and only on their compound, mm-hmm. yeah, and then have very minimal documentation, but based on the documentation would be able to pay the physician for it, yeah. So that's a really dark chapter of, of observational research. There's lots of bad press about this, of course. Yeah. And, and uh, lots of different pharma companies were accused of, of these practices, uh, specifically also because these studies usually didn't even end up in any publications or anything like this. So, so that is also, let's say, a dark side that we surely need to mention. And that is something that, yeah, the industry, I think, has evolved from. But here and there, these kind of studies pop up again and again, interestingly still. Yeah. No, and I think it's it's really important that it takes a lot of time and energy and money to run a clinical trial. Even a prospective observational study is still going to cost a lot of money. You should try to answer a question, right? Yeah. And you should try to answer a question because when you think of the broader ecosystem, they're waiting for more information to base guideline decisions on, to base individual patient treatment decisions on. And and so, you know, we should be really mindful of how we're spending our research efforts to ensure that we're contributing positively to those decisions. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, the financial side of that was sometimes kind of that, oh, we, we spend, you know, for each dollar we spend investing here, we get $3 back in terms of sales. And um, yeah. <laughs> so metrics are important. These kind of calculations, of course. Yeah. Sometimes make you do the wrong things. Yeah. So, yeah. and, but, but I think there's, there lots of companies have put kind of, restrictions in place yeah mm -hmm. so there's also between companies kind of code of conduct there's lots of local regulations in different mm -hmm. markets that um, make it much harder to do these things not necessarily making it impossible because there's always you know it's not that black and white usually yeah mm -hmm. what does it mean that you have done it predominantly for financial reasons Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, you know, evidence is relevant. Yeah. All these mm -hmm. things are, of course, very subjective. Yeah. Yes. How, how scientific is this, is this question yeah, that you're answering with this study? But of course, there are certain kind of practices that directly question it. So I heard about mm -hmm. one study that recruited kind of, don't know, 100,000 patients and they actually entered only 20% into the database then you can think mm, that's a pretty clear signal that this was not done for scientific <laughs> purposes, but they just wanted to save money with running the, uh, running the study. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because at that time, of course, we also all, everything was paper-based. Yeah. Right. So that is, uh, that's another kind of. So two comments I wanted to pick up on. So, you know, on the bright side of, of observational studies um, and real world data, you know, I think it really is important to understand how a product is being used and, and to understand how other products are being used yeah. um, in the real world. And sometimes, you know, the existing uh, data sources, you know, the, the obvious ones like claims data, don't have the same endpoints that mm. you're really interested in learning about to understand patient benefit. You know, they do have some, some financial uh, information that's relevant to a healthcare ecosystem, but not necessarily a lot about patient benefits. So going ahead and collecting those additional data points can help, you know, kind of inform that cost benefit ratio analysis. Um, I think, yeah, and that's, a, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand how your patients are treated and who is treated within the patient segment. Yeah, mm -hmm. because um, it could be that, and it's very often that, you know, when you enter into a new area, first a specific part of the population is treated. Maybe those mm -hmm. that with more severe diseases. Yeah. Um, or maybe this is in, in second, third line of treatment because mm -hmm. uh, physicians say, okay, this is a new drug. I don't know so much about it. So I use it when I don't have another choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, the patients, uh, the physicians actually using it first are different physicians. These mm -hmm. are more the early adopters, the more kind of risk-taking physicians, maybe physicians that... Um, have participated in your clinical trials, so maybe more academic centers. All these things play a role there. And understanding that will help you to also 
better understand kind of first, maybe first safety signals coming mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Safety is another kind of thing that you can't really answer usually with claims data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if there's specific things that you really would like to monitor that are, you know, not that severe, like, you know, things leading to hospitalization or things like that, but, but maybe uh, just a nasty side effect mm -hmm. yeah, that is nasty enough to be disturbing, but not, you know, severe enough to be of a public health issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, itching or a little bit of diarrhea or these kind mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. Or, or some pain from your injection site reaction. Yeah. These things might be actually quite good to know and but but you don't find them in claims data basis absolutely i think the other point that we all went to school on during the pandemic was what data do you absolutely have to collect yeah you know when all of these observational and clinical trial uh, trials were being conducted during the pandemic um, we we heard all about an exhausted frontline healthcare worker situation yeah. and and the reality is that um, charting does not occur in real time nor does yeah. entering crf data and so you better be very pragmatic about what needs to be collected understanding that not every single question is going to be answered by every single study but what can we really collect that would be of value that a physician is going to fill out in their last 30 minutes in the locker room <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, how observational studies are run is very different to how clinical trials are run in many, many different aspects. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of, it starts with how you do data monitoring. It starts with which physicians actually take part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You may have, you know, many physicians that will take part in an observational study that will never be eligible for a clinical trial yeah, because mm -hmm. either they don't have the patient throughput, you know, because can't reach any recruitment targets, or maybe they don't have, you know, the, the uh, infrastructure with maybe a study nurse and things like this, or maybe they have, you know, certain trainings they don't have, yeah, mm -hmm. like GCP and, and what have you, so, and they just don't want to do it, yeah. But still these, you know, maybe these are the physicians that predominantly will prescribe your medication. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to, you know, learn from these, these parts as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's another area that when I look back over the last 20 years has dramatically changed. Mm -hmm. And that is anything to do with reimbursement in healthcare systems and HTA. Mm -hmm. When I first entered into the space, there was hardly any HTA body in place around the world. Mm -hmm. So there was some kind of, you know, first thoughts about these kind of things and here and there a little bit kind of, you know, discussions. But it was pretty much kind of, you know, a very unstructured approach across the world. But as, you know, these budgets were rising 
for for healthcare, and there were some you know cost of drugs that were really really big. Yeah, mm -hmm. politicians became much more aware about oh we need to put in some breaks here, and mm -hmm. put in some systems here, and so in the last 20 years you know, lots of lots of laws have changed in different uh, countries and new bodies like NICE in, in the UK um, or specifically actually England or the EQUIC in Germany, uh, French system, Canadian, Australian, Korean, all these different countries around the world have adopted, have applied multiple changes in terms of legislation in these areas. And mm -hmm. so this kind of, you know, payer topic wasn't a topic a big topic 20 years ago yeah mm -hmm. oh we need more sales oh let's oh we need more sales let's you know increase the price mm -hmm. that was a very very common kind of thing to do to reach your target mm -hmm. uh, in terms of your your financial targets as a, as a pharma company yeah um when there wasn't enough volume well let's increase the price which is not that easy anymore. <laughs> it is not. No, and I, I think it's really interesting that you, you see it manifest differently in different parts of the world, but you know there is an appreciation for, we have a whole population to take care of. And so mm. if we have this new gene therapy coming in, that's going to have a very high price tag because presumably it's a cure How is that going to impact the other diseases that we need to treat? And yeah. how are we going to be able to add this to our portfolio, understanding that our healthcare budget may not increase enough? Yeah. And so um, these really are interesting decisions that need to be made that we don't always see in the development space. Certainly, yeah. they're thinking about access questions with respect to the design of their trials and the endpoints that make it in. But really, when you have to start thinking about the trade-offs across a very large portfolio, uh, it's a it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if you look into the cost of medications, yeah. So if you think back 20 years ago, yeah, there were hardly any biologics on the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these biologics have a very different price tag to the usual yes. pills. Yeah. Yes. And also the kind of the price decrease for generic, for, for, you know, usual pills is really drastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for these blockbusters, yeah, as soon as they go out of patent, the weeks after you have a 95% decrease in price sometimes. Mm -hmm. 95%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that speaks a little bit to the cost of goods, actually, <laughs> for a couple of these things. Yeah. But, but it, it also shows you that, you know, um, that the, the cost was a really, really different thing at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the cost of these um, MUPs that we have now everywhere is significantly higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you see kind of a blockbuster 20 years ago had, I don't know, three, four, five billion revenues per year, Humira had four, five times of that. Mm -hmm. yeah? 
And I'm not sure whether it's still there, but, but it's, you know, some of these treatments are really, really expensive. Well, and, and Humira was an interesting case, right? Because they had, uh, they have many indications. Um, they mm-hmm. found that it was an effective treatment for many indications, and that likely had an impact on the negotiations they had with the HTA bodies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, this is it's it's really really interesting. It's it's now very different. The, the price is actually decreasing mm-hmm. with each indication you add. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the payers say, well, no, you have even more patients you are treating with this expensive drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You need to help us control our budget. Right. Because you can't have a different price for a different indication. Nope. That's, that is something that we have learned is that you can't charge some patients more for the same drug yeah. given in the same dosage. Um, and so that has been an interesting kind of market correction. Yeah. Yeah. And it leads to all kind of interesting consequences yeah mm-hmm. so if you for example launch in a specific indication where you need a higher dose yeah and then your price is set on this higher dose mm-hmm. and later on you go into another indication where you have a much lower dose mm-hmm. that can actually lead to lots of problems yeah mm-hmm. because since this you know this low dose becomes a new anchor yeah, you may even decide not to launch in this in this indication. Yeah, mm-hmm. not submitted. I mean, I think it really depends on on the size of the population and the the impact that you can have on that population in terms of their overall health. Yeah, 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 yeah. So HDA is a really really new field. I think there is real world evidence. We have talked mm-hmm. about it. Lots of lots of different changes. I think also there's a there's a pendulum, you know, swinging backwards and forwards of how companies are organized globally versus locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think generally now the global headquarters have much more kind of strict rules on mm-hmm. managing data because mm-hmm. they have been burned in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that several of these big companies selling antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics, yeah, when it came out that these had metabolic side effects and, you know, led to all kinds of different things. They needed to, you know, collect all their studies. Mm-hmm. And I know from inside of these different companies, they had, you know, study hunting teams. They were teams that kind of traveled around the world to go into the different affiliates to find these studies that were conducted and find the data. Yeah, which end up on a CD that was encrypted and they didn't have the password anymore. Or that was, you know, piles of CRFs that were in cardboard boxes somewhere and all these kind of stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, nowadays, uh, it's it's a very different thing. There is nothing anymore like something local. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. Remember, 20 years ago, the internet that was be- before the internet bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, you could do something locally and it wouldn't have an impact globally. But nowadays, there is no such thing as pure local communication. Everything ends up somewhere. Yeah. Right. 
And so there's much more scrutiny on a, on a global scale that say, we need to, you know, manage things much more tighter. Yeah, and we can't just kind of have lots of people running loose and, and doing whatever they like. It is really interesting. And that's something I remember from my public health days is at the time, there was this kind of big separation between information technology departments and healthcare. And information technology would come in and say, all right, we're going to teach you how to structure your data. And then they realized how much of it there was. But then the digital revolution in other industries took off and IT actually became much more savvy about how to handle, you know, terabytes and more of data. And, And suddenly there was a lot to learn from these partnerships. And now you have a situation where a lot more information is in the cloud. And, and there really is no excuse not to be able to keep track of these data. But of course, it is, it is about management and kind of thinking about how to migrate to new systems um, that can account for new data. And so you see big pharma companies using software, you know, making big changes in software so that they haven't made in yep. years, in decades. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and that's a fascinating and and wonderful thing to see because you should be able to see a benefit for affiliates to be able to address the questions that they need to address in their own studies or by having access to the global studies. Yeah. One of the things that I still see, however, is these you know fights within the companies mm-hmm. of you know local versus global people. It's, I've seen it across many, many different companies, across many different areas. It's, it, typically, the story goes like this. The global people say, the local people have no clue. These are kind of, you know, cowboys. They do kind of crazy things and they, you know, are not adhering to our strategy and, and we need to, you know, holds them really, really tight so that they don't damage things. And we control mm-hmm. the information so that, you know, say they, uh, we control the organization. And then the, the story from the uh, local side is very often, oh, these global guys, they don't have a clue what's really going on in the market. You know, they, they sit somewhere and, and have, uh, you know, no, they are not accountable for uh, the sales that we need to do. And they, you know, don't, don't know exactly about our systems. They, you know, they are either they are from the US and don't know about Europe or they are from Europe and don't know about the US. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's kind of very often these kind of pro- proximity biases going on. Yeah. Definitely. And and I am pleased that in in my own context, I see a real shift where I see global reaching out to lots of affiliates to get their input and and have sessions dedicated to understanding the local markets and the local concerns. You know, what is driving the patient population in their markets so that um, we we can develop strategies that are better able to address them. Because again, you know, when the goal goes beyond sales to having an impact on patients and society, um, one does need to think about, you know, what's, what is the cost of leaving a market behind? 
Yeah. You know, what does it mean for these patients that we're not going to attend to their needs? And so, you know, that is something that I'm very proud to see um, that that lots of affiliates are coming to the table, despite the fact that they manage entire portfolios to talk about the needs in one disease area yeah. so that their their needs can be accounted for in the development and launch and lifecycle management strategies. I think those companies that balance these global and local needs that have a lot of trust in the communication, yeah, these companies generally do much better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Work is much smoother. There's much less kind of, you know, uh, friction. Communication channels are much opener. Um, you know, mm-hmm. both sides learn from each other much faster. But if you have these, you know, us against them mentality within the companies that mm-hmm. put so much kind of problems into place. Well, it's 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 sort of the bigger stage of what we've been talking about as statisticians in medical affairs. We are much more successful when we have really good relationships with our late phase and our early development colleagues yeah. and can promote these ideas of of you know the bigger picture and getting the drug all the way to patients earlier. And these affiliates have much more success when they can work together and learn from each other and learn from global to have their needs met. Yeah. And statistics can play actually a quite interesting role because usually it's a much smaller number of people. And so communication and building trust is much easier than (laughs) if you have, you know, 10 times the amount of medics or sales or sales probably 100 times the amount of salespeople and, and other commercial aspects. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really cool to leverage the, the strengths of uh, and the opportunities of smaller teams and build mm-hmm. connections, you know, uh, whether you're sitting locally or globally, work together, build trust, learn about the needs of the other people and, and work together. That can only strengthen the position of stats within the overall environment. If stats is the function that best works together across the different silos, stats has a much bigger impact. Definitely. Thanks so much, Jenny, for this first episode. We'll continue to have these discussions in the future. So watch out for much more content to come. Thank you very much. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.